praise God. Yeah, yeah, let's, it's all right. Remember, this is not a golf tournament. You can clap and you can give God thanks and praise. Uh, we are here to uh, give God praise. And today we're talking about loving God with all of our soul. So it's totally appropriate. Um, we're in a series called Dedicated. And we're going to start in Mark 12. If you've got uh, your Bible, Bible app and all that good stuff open, then go ahead and get it open. We've been talking about what it means to be dedicated. And there's two ways in which we want to be dedicated. One is uh, our uh, state of, of doing it like officially, right? We want to be set apart, to be dedicated to God like, um, like something that's set aside. And so we spiritually are set aside uh, by God or for God's purposes. And then on the other hand, we want to continue to dedicate ourselves on a daily basis uh, to God. So th- we're talking really about full commitment, what that means, uh, and so it, we're basing it out of Mark chapter 12. Jesus is there debating and teaching. And there in Mark 12, we see one of the teachers of the law come to him, and they're very impressed by his teaching. And they hear him debating the Pharisees. And here's what happens next it says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, Which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than these. Okay, so we've looked at the mind and we've looked at the heart. So today we're going to look at the soul. Next week we'll do strength uh, and Today, we got to kind of go, okay, what's the difference between the soul and the heart? What in the world is my soul? What is it that is dedicated, in fact, to God that we're being called to love God with? Heart, mind, soul, and strength. So let's begin with a definition. Do the best we can here. Uh, we, when we say something has soul, right, or something is soulful, uh, we often will say, for instance, like, soul music, if we take that, and there, you know, you've got certain people that come to mind, certain types of music come to mind, you know, you're thinking Otis Redding, you're thinking uh, Marvin Gaye, you're thinking Ray Charles, you're thinking Aretha Franklin, and uh, James Brown, who was the godfather of what? So, exactly, right? So, there's a, an intersection, the musicologists, uh, these people who study music and its history, would say that soul music derives from primarily out of the African-American experience in this country, but it's also at the intersection of gospel music, no surprise there, and R&B. And so right there, there's something that is distinctive about it in terms of its type and its origin that comes from down into, from a different kind of place. Not necessarily better or worse, but a different depth. Uh, you can tell when, when you see the Star Spangled Banner being sung at a sporting event, for instance. You got... Uh, somebody who might do it just right down the middle of the fairway, just totally straight. And then you got other people who might do a very soulful rendition of it. And we know what that sounds like. If I just played it for you, you'd know exactly, okay, that one's soulful, that one is not. I would say in the same way, uh, you can look at a Christian many times and you can determine whether their faith has soul, if you will. Uh, There is something deep about a a soulful faith. It comes from a different place. They're loving walking with God. They're hungry for the things of God. 
They're not just kind of uh, out there messing around. They're not frequently distracted. And when you see them engaging the things of the Spirit, man, it, it's just, it just, you know, they look like they're having the time of their life. Uh, when you see them talking to God's people, they look like they're having a blast. They, they are hungry to, to be with God's people. They're hungry to get into the Word and to pray and to do those kinds of things. They're, they're, they, they're loving God with all of their soul. But how's loving God with our soul different than loving God with our heart, for instance, or something like that? Well, sometimes we might, let's go back to the relationships for just a second, as we kind of seek the right definition here. We'll refer to somebody as a soulmate, right? As opposed to just somebody else you date. Oh, I found my soulmate. What we mean is we want to find somebody that we can connect with at the deepest levels, not just somebody who's another person or another, you know, whomever. Now, when you go to the Bible for help on this, it speaks often of the soul. The scriptures tell us, for instance, that a person can fear for his soul, risk his soul, lose her soul, save her soul. The soul can feel wounded. The soul can feel troubled. It can feel contentment one day and the next day feel torment. So, we wouldn't probably be asked or invited or told or commanded to love God with all of our soul if we weren't able to do it. One of the most telling passages in all of the Bible with regards to the soul actually comes from right near the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we read the account of God creating uh, Adam, and there in verse 7, it says that the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. So with the life of God's breath, Adam becomes uh, living clay, if you will, instead of just good old ordinary clay, that there's, his soul is awake, or he becomes a human when God breathes the breath of life into him, he becomes a living soul. Now, those of you who've been to a funeral, most of us have, and they don't do open casket funerals as often as they used to. But as a pastor, I go to lots of funerals, done lots of funerals, performed lots of funerals, and I will often stand by the casket and greet the family and the loved ones as they go by. One of the most common things that people will say to help comfort each other is they'll look into the casket and they'll say something like, that's not really her. That's not really him. And the reason they say that is because they realize, okay, the body is the body. The soul is the soul. And so their soul has now departed their body. And so what you're seeing is not really them because what makes them them isn't, isn't here anymore, okay? So it's a way of, of saying that something has left, okay? That, that body that was once living clay has now become, again, ordinary clay, if you will. Something's left, and that something is the soul. So this, I think, gets closer to what the Bible means when it talks about under, uh, loving God with the soul, the human soul, as God's word sees it, is the essence of the person. It is your life, at least your life and beyond, given to you by the creator. And while your soul has something to do with your body, your feelings, your mind, your will, your relationships, it is also somehow greater than those things, beyond those things, not limited to any of those things, and perhaps even greater than the sum total of all of those things. Glad we cleared it all up right? Uh, in a mysterious way, our soul is our very person, created and enlivened by God. So when it comes to the life of the human soul, one of the things we see 
is God's admonition to take great care for the soul because the soul is the most valuable part of us. It's eternal. It goes beyond the grave. And so it is different in the heart than the heart. There are different words in the Bible. They're used one for heart, one for soul. Uh, and, and as we do it, when, when the Bible is trying to say, okay, love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, it's like soul music. It's like whatever we use that word to say, the deepest, most profound part of you. So the heart might have to do with the will, as we talked about in Heart Week when we were talking about that, but the soul is different. That's the eternal part of you, the part that God created that makes you alive, distinctively you. It goes beyond the grave. So if we're going to look at, uh, at what it means, sometimes things like this that are hard to describe, it's like if I told you to describe the color red, but you couldn't say red and you couldn't point to anything specifically, uh, you would have a very hard time doing that. You would go, well, it's kind of like, you know, and you can't mention any other colors. You just have to explain what is red. Well, you'd, you'd, you know, it's extremely difficult to do in the same way trying to explain the soul is tricky. Sometimes it's easier to just know it when you see it and say, ah, that's what it looks like. Loving God with your soul looks like this. Psalm 103, 1 to 5. Listen to this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Listen to them. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that's within me, everything I got, every part of me, bless his holy name. That's what it looks like. So it's hard to go, okay, what does it mean to love God with all your soul? It's easy to just kind of go, I got a feeling that's pretty close to what it looks like, at least with words. What does it look like in action? It means that not just your words, but as the psalmist will say elsewhere, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And then your actions. And I think that part of loving God with your soul and the deepest parts of you is why he says all four things. When Jesus says heart, mind, soul, strength, it's a way of saying all of it. I mean, your whole being, everything you've got, everything God put in you was created for you to be able to love God with it. And so biblically, our soul is that deepest part of us, that it includes the heart, but it's greater than the heart. It's an eternal part of us, the most valuable part of who you are and what God gave you in this life. So our soul is the most valuable thing that we have. It's not the heart, it's the soul. In Mark 8, Jesus, uh, this is right after Peter comes to him. Jesus has said he's going to go to the cross and die. Peter's saying, no, forbid it. It's not going to happen. Jesus says, get behind me. And then he goes on with this passage, and he says this to his disciples. He, in here, there's a throwaway line, or what's often a, a throwaway line in this text, but to me, it's profound. So let's read it. It says, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Now get this. What good is it 
for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul. Now get this one. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? That's the throwaway line. We kind of leave that one. What can anybody give in exchange for their soul? Can you buy it? Can I buy yours? Can you buy mine? Hey, I got a, you know, big pile of cash. I'll buy your soul. Or can you buy it back from God once you've committed it to him? See, what Jesus is emphasizing here is your soul is so valuable that there's nothing that can be traded for it or used to purchase it. There is no currency strong enough or more valuable than the human soul. The only thing from a biblical standpoint that can purchase the human soul is the blood of Jesus. And that if it wasn't his, nothing ever before it or after it can qualify. So when he gives us this, he's saying our soul is too valuable to be trifled with. It's too valuable to be bought by anything other than the blood of Christ. And yet, we learn from Scripture, it can be easily sold. It can be sold by us. It's even more easily prone to be invested in things that are passing away rather than the eternal. Our soul is the most valuable thing that we have. It's emptied out by sin, and it's filled by God. To love God with our soul is to love God completely in such a way that every song becomes a hymn, every word becomes a prayer, every action is a sacrament. Our souls are a part of us that Jesus died for, and it's the part of us that will live on in eternity. So as we add it to the list, heart, soul, mind, strength, the soul really does include all four things. That's the pivotal point. It's eternal. So I don't all of a sudden say, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to love God with my strength today, or I'm going to do this. The idea is that I'm loving God completely with everything, whole person, love of God, not just my thoughts, my actions, not just my words, what goes on in here, my passions, my desires, that taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ like we talked about last week, all of that stuff is what it means to love God with your soul, that eternal, deep personal part of you that God created and made you unique with. So I'm going to take time now to just break out four things. If you want to, in terms of like how you love God with your soul, we're going to do some habit building next week where we can kind of look at how, how to put a life together that, and, a, and maybe a, uh, some habits of life that get us where we want to go. But the foundation for loving God with your soul starts with these four things. We're going to start here. You got to start by dedicating your soul to begin with. There are a lot of people that try to avoid ever committing themselves too much to anything or anything, um, you know, to God, to people in general. They fear commitments of all kinds and all shades, stripes. And there are two dimensions to dedicating yourself to God. There's that one-time thing that you do where I make a decision to give Jesus my life. Uh, I submit to him in baptism. And there, the old Tim goes down under the water. The new Tim is raised to new life. So, so who I was is gone, the new me is raised, all right? So that, that's one piece. But the other is taking seriously what my life means, the fact that I exist, that I was given the gift of this life by God, what does that mean? It means that it's unique and special, that it has purpose, and it's set apart and dedicated 
to God. That's part of what it means to become a Christian. Uh, I remember hearing Warren Buffett once talk about businesses that he used to buy when he was uh, first starting to invest. And he said, I used to buy businesses that were used cigar butts, is what he called them. They were businesses that were, were like, uh, if you're going down, say, the sidewalk, and you see a, a cigarette or a cigar butt on the ground, and it's still got some smoke in it, it's down to the nub, but there's still maybe one, two good puffs left on it. He would buy those and, and uh, basically you know, sell off the pieces and, and, then, and then discard it. Um, and I, when I heard that, the first thing I thought of was the approach that some people take to um, relationships, God, church. They look, and when they feel the need or the desire, they will pick up whatever's handy at the moment, and they'll grab a puff or two and then kind of throw it away. They, they use God rather than love God. They never really commit themselves to anybody. They never really commit themselves to, to, to the church. Some people will use God and relationships and churches in the same fashion. They, they don't want to dedicate themselves. They never really put their heart and soul into anything. And so if you look around, I used to be able to tell this when I was coaching. I could tell the players who really wanted to be there and those who didn't. You could see it in the habits. You could see it in the attitude. You could see it in the people who even, if they were really good players, might, might play at a, for their age, uh, you know, a, a, a very professional all-star caliber level, but they didn't like it. Their parents were making them do it. So they, they did it, but they, there was no passion in it. There was no soul in it, if you will. And the same applies to Christianity. There are people who, I think in the old days, the big danger was you'd go through this rote routine of habits and it wouldn't have any real passion or value. And now we have no passion or habits. And so we end up in this situation where not only are we not, not developing the kinds of ways of life that would allow us to experience the joy of it, because really the fun part of playing a game or a sport, for instance, is when you develop a level of proficiency that's good enough that you don't have to focus uh, and, and uh, try as hard to do a decent job at it. I don't like playing certain sports that I'm terrible at. So being terrible does impact the joy that you, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, just go have fun and whatever. It's like, no, I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to win. If I'm going to play, I want to do a good job at it, et cetera, et cetera. And so I don't like playing sports I'm no good at. And to get good at it, I would have to devote myself to it, dedicate myself to it and get better, right? And so a lot of people, they cigar butt their way through their faith. They just kind of go, okay, you know what? Hey, I'm going through a tough time. I could use some encouragement. So, you know, hey, there's a, there's a, a church over there. I'll go swing by there and pick it up, puff, puff, discard it, and on my way I go. And I think that's just such a, an aberration compared to what God has in mind when he says, love me with everything. Everything. You know, and it's not, it's not, I mean, just church, it's God himself. It's the people in the church. It's the ministries of the church, it's the, uh, the commitment that, I guess, sets your life on a path to say, this is basically everything to me. I mean, if you want to get to know me, it starts there. It starts with Christ. Uh, if you want to understand what's important to me, it starts with Christ. And, and, it, and it ends with Christ. Um, that there is a part to me um, that is my soul and it was given to me by God. So there really isn't this aspect of me where I've got the worldly me and I've got the Christian me. I have a job over here and I got a spiritual life over here. It's all me because all of me is dedicated to loving God with all of me. Does that make sense? Heart, mind, soul, strength. That's what 
this text is saying to us, and Jesus says, that's the greatest of all the commandments. It's not basic. It's profound, impossible, difficult, exhilarating, all those things. It's a lifetime quest, and it's something that you can start on today. It's all of those. So don't waste your life by refusing to dedicate it to your heavenly Father who gave it to you for that purpose. Secondly, discover and work to heal wounds and fears. Now, uh, this is one that I don't think is real easy to, you know, I'm going to get a little esoteric here for a second, but people who struggle to live out their faith at the soul level usually do so because they're withholding a part of themselves for a reason. It might be idolatry, might be something like as basic as uh, I am too um, committed to my own sovereignty to make room for God's in my life. It might be something in our earthly families or past relational wounds that we're projecting onto our faith. So for instance, somebody might be in a position where they've just learned over time, I can't trust anybody. And then they take that into their faith and have a hard time trusting God as well because of the other stuff that's in the past or going on at the moment. Um, you know, it, so it, it could be that. And I, I think the, the best biblical example of this I can see, and, or fears, uh, would be the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, for those of you who aren't familiar with that story, there's a master, he's going away for a while, so he leaves some of his money, five talents, a talent was a unit of money, uh, five talents to one guy, two to another, and one to another. And when they go, those of you who are familiar with the story will remember that um, when the master returns, he wants to see how his investment went. The guy with the five talents says, hey, I invested it, here's five more. Here's your five back and five more on top of that. Master goes, well done. Same thing happens with the second guy. He says, here's the two talents you gave me and here's two more. Then you have the one talent guy and he goes to him and he says, okay, what, what, what's the return on the investment? And he gives him back the original talent and he didn't invest it at all. He's called wicked and lazy. He's cast into outer darkness. But the reason that he gives for not investing it to me is the key. You guys remember what it was? He says, I knew you were a harsh man. Fear. He didn't want to take a risk because he was afraid of God in this story. And there are people who do that. They're, they're too afraid of, I mean, fill in the blank, failure, uh, afraid that they might be tempted beyond what they're able to bear, uh, afraid that they would get to the end of their life and realize that all, the, all their peers who mocked them for being a person of faith might turn out to be right. So they're just going to hang on to this one little corner over here and, and not be one to lay it out there. Sometimes it's something that, that happened in the past. Sometimes it's bad experience at churches in the past that could be, I mean, there's a whole bunch of ways that Satan will try to convince you not to love God all the way, to commit to him 80%. After all, 80%, that's better than most people. Uh, most people aren't committed to him at all, or maybe only at 25%, but I'm at 80, so therefore I, God's happy with me because he's obligated to, to, to be satisfied with that because I'm satisfied with it. No, no. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind all your soul, and all your strength. 
you know, there are people, even, even, even pastors who you get into a church context or whatever, and you get, you know, you, you have impact, you have, you have uh, difficult times with people or whatever. And over time, people in the church, pastors too, will start refusing to reinvest themselves because of the pain involved. They don't want to get hurt again. And they don't realize that that's the part, though, that, that part is the part that God calls you to. That's what makes this different than the average friendship that people have, is the willingness to love one another as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to love people in a, in a radical kind of way. That's why the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. You know why we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves? Because we love ourselves. That's why. That's the root of that, is an acknowledgement that we are very selfish by nature, and that what God is calling us to do is to say, okay, loving yourself is healthy and good. It doesn't mean you're wrong to do that. God loves you too. That's great. But love others the way that you love yourself. Don't just seek your own preservation. Don't just seek your own growth or whatever. Seek the growth of other people just as you seek it for yourself, because that's God's will for you in Christ. Number three, rest your soul. Rest. This all sounds like a lot of hard work. It is at some level, but at another level, it's actually how you rest. Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So he says, if you're weary and burdened, come to me, take my yoke on you, and then here's the part, and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, as the old translations would say, humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Uh, you know, I... I used to move myself. I was moving. Like when I was in college and I was coming home for the summer or whatever, I would, I would move myself. And I would do that because I realized that uh, I don't own much. I have clothes. I have like a stereo. I have laundry hamper. Uh, and that's about it. When I was in college, I didn't own much of anything. So it wasn't hard for me to move myself. Okay, well, today I've got a wife and three kids and moving, I would never think about moving by myself, ever. Uh, in fact, I would probably not be willing to move at all if I either, A, couldn't pay to hire movers, or I didn't have enough friends that would be willing to help me move, then I'm just going to die in the house I'm in. I'm not going to, I'm not moving myself. I will not do it, okay? Because it's stinking heavy. It's too much. Like, it's one thing to, and, and this is where I think people get get messed up in their faith, is when you're committed to moving yourself, you live at a level that only requires that kind of weight. You know what I mean? Uh, because if I'm just going to move myself and I'm not going to try and rely on God, I'm not going to take Jesus' yoke on myself or anything like that, then I'm going to shrink my life. I'm going to shrink my spiritual life, the risk I'm willing to take, the faith I'm willing to charge forward in, the courage I'm willing to go through life with. I'm going to shrink it down to something I can manage and move by myself. And what he's saying is, it is a lot easier to move, to plow the field, so to speak, Christian, if you'll, you'll yoke yourself to me, because he's got real big shoulders. He's a strong lad. 
Jesus is. And what he's saying is, you, 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 you yoke yourself to me and watch this plow move. And you know what? By yoking yourself to me, you're going to rest. And you can learn from me. Because I am meek and lowly in heart. The hymnal in the church I grew up in was called Songs of the Church. Kind of an olive green cover with faded gold writing on the front. I always thought it was so cool. The first page was a Ten Commandments of how to use the hymnal. And one of them was like, Don't spank, thou shalt not spank your children with me. It was funny. I love that thing. And then number 69, that hymn. The chorus of that hymn was that, was that verse. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest to your souls. The, the title of the hymn, though, was called, O Heart Bowed Down with Sorrow. And I was like, what a depressing title for a hymn. Um, a lot, of, a lot of those hymns written in that, in that era were, you know, kind of post-Civil War era were real depressing and, and sad. Either that or Depression era hymns. This one is basically talking to people whose hearts bowed down, meaning you kind of get the sense that their shoulders are so weighed down that their heart is just completely forward. And the solution is come to Jesus. And it was funny, last night, I just sat there and I found a, a congregational version of that hymn, and I just put it on repeat. And then, middle of the night, I was waking up and I was worrying about some things, and I just started to sing it in my head. My poor wife's asleep next to me, and I'm like, she doesn't deserve to hear me singing in the middle of the night right now, so we'll let her sleep in peace. But it's amazing how even just saying those words to yourself, when you believe them, you can just feel the weight leave. You're just like, whoa. Ooh, somebody strong just picked up an end of the couch now that we're moving. You can just feel it. You guys ever been in a tug of war where your, your team's a little undermanned and you can feel yourself being pulled this way and then some big bubba comes and jumps on your side and then all of a sudden it just jerks the whole other side the other way and you guys win. It didn't even take you, any energy from you to pull. That's kind of the, the image. Why, why are you letting your heart be bowed down with sorrow when you could be resting? He doesn't just say, your choice is be bowed down with sorrow or not be bowed down with sorrow. He draws this polarity between you can either be bowed down with sorrow, you can be totally overmatched, or you can rest. To me, that's an easy one. Uh, because the days that we live in, is, they're, they're, they're tough. I remember in the book, Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert uh, wrote the book, and I got problems with what, kind of its overall message, but there was a quote in there I remember. She says, some days are to be numbered, other days are to be weighed. And uh, there are days that have a weight to them. And we don't necessarily know when those days are coming. And the best way to prepare for those is to make sure that when those days that need to be weighed and are weighed a lot are there, that we're yoked. We got the right oxen with their right necks in the yoke. 
For both the days that can be just counted and those that really need to be weighed, Jesus offers us rest, not labor, rest for our souls. And then lastly, focus on who, not what. Uh, here's what I mean, and we're going to flesh this out in more detail next week, but um, one of the mistakes that people make, I think, when it comes to spiritual transformation, if you go and you look at what Jesus tells us to do and the habits that he wants us to, um, to live out, they are few and far between. What we tend to get more are identity statements. Be transformed. Okay, how do I do? Okay, what do I do? Uh, I, I, is there a transformation ticket I can buy? Is it a, what do I do exactly? And it never really tells you. Now, you can read between the lines by watching people who are transformed live, right? But it's designed to say, listen, the goal is who you're becoming, not what you're doing. Uh, those of you who made a weight loss goal for the new year, I want to lose 20 pounds. Okay. If that's the goal, then you're going to, you may be successful. You may lose 20 pounds and then you're going to gain them back again. That was the funny one for me was, it was like, I made a weight loss goal and I achieved it and then I gained it all back again. So it, the question is, did he actually hit the goal or not? Well, the goal should never be, I'm going to lose it. The goal should have been something like, I want to be a healthy person a healthier person. Because then the question becomes, okay, then if I'm a healthy person, then what do I do? What do I eat? What do I drink? What, how do I exercise or not exercise? What would a healthy person do? If I am a disciple of Jesus, then how should I answer this question? How should I live this out? Uh, in this particular situation, what choice should I make if that's my commitment? Now, my commitment is something as... Um, and so people will say stuff like, I want to read my Bible every day. Okay, that's a goal. That's fine. But I know a lot of people who read their Bible a lot. In fact, the Pharisees were like this, that, that were never really transformed. The question is, okay, how does a transformed person live? Maybe a better thing would be to say, uh, I am a person who hears God's voice, who wants to hear God's voice, all day, every day. Then the question becomes, okay, when I get out of bed, what should I do? When I go to bed, what should I do? And throughout the day, how should I live in order to live that out? So when you focus on the goal instead of, the, of essentially the, the being, the piece of it, we can often end up in some really um, interesting places and they tend to not stick because God is more concerned with who we become than what we achieve. Okay? I'm gonna say that again. He's more concerned about who we become than what we achieve. So if we work on who we're becoming, it forces us to do soul work and we will achieve the right things in the process. But there might be, I'll give you an example of, of things that you can do if you wanna set goals. Don't set task goals, set being goals and write them out with a, with a personal pronoun to start. Something like this. I am a disciplined, focused leader who honors God above all else, okay? That shapes and frames what then habits you want to put into your life to do that. But the goal is not the habit. The goal is that. See the difference? I am a friend that my friends can count on. Okay? I am a pastor that role models faithfulness to Jesus and his people over time. Right? You'll have your own. Pick two or three of them out and go, okay, if I were to love God completely, who would I become? 
And how can I put that in a sentence or two? Right? Now, then, you work backward from that to the habits. Don't, don't just say, I want to read my Bible every day. I want to pray all the time. I want to, okay? The goal is, is bigger than just praying all the time. Or, or, or Those are helpful. Don't get me wrong. But the goal is to become like Jesus and to learn to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. Okay, so we don't get there by, by just reading the Bible all the time or praying or whatever. Those are tools to reach that goal. And when I realized that, um, you know, I, I said this maybe six or eight weeks ago in a sermon, but one of the best ways to, to make sure that we keep at it, whether we're down in the dumps or whether we're on the top of the mountain, is to add the little phrase for now to how you feel and how you look at your life. So you may have rolled in here today and you're like, oh man, I'm depressed and sad and my life's a mess for now, for now. But there's, there's hope for the future. And so you may have walked in here and you know what? Hey, I'm at the top of the mountain. I've never been closer to God than I am at this moment in time. Great, for now. So stay there. Don't get, don't get as, the, as the King James used to say, uh, I guess King James still says it, but uh, you know, he who think he standeth, take heed lest he fall, right? Don't get braggadocious about where you are with God. That's how the enemy kind of works on you. So, so you kind of go in this ongoing state of movement. I'm moving closer to God at all times, and I'm aware. My eyes are on the horizon, and I'm going on this adventure of faith with God each day. So the transformation of our soul will never be instantaneous. It will never be completed on this side of eternity. But the way that it begins is a dedication to God, saying, I'm going to do this, God. I'm, I'm dedicating my life to you. And then, you know, working from there into making sure that the wounds and the fears that we've got don't hold us back, that this piece of us doesn't stay kind of carved out for ourselves, free of the lordship of Jesus, that we don't grind to the point that we burn out or we, we, we end up turning um, the Christian faith into something that, that's basically a, you know, some shell of itself that's just covered in legalism and, and works of righteousness that have no passion and no heart in them and that we can rest our souls in Jesus and then focusing on the who, not the what and how we go about these things. So next week, we're going to do, do strength, what it means to love God with all of our strength. And I hope you'll be back. We'll We'll start putting the habits, working backward from the statements that we had today. We'll start plugging in some habits to some things. Give you a menu. You can kind of pick some that you think fit you really well. Uh, and hopefully that'll help you take some leaps forward in your faith, okay? Right now we're going to gather around the Lord's table. And as we do, uh, this meal was instituted by Jesus. And he asked us to do this in remembrance of him. The church has done it uh, since its earliest days. And when we do, we take the bread and the cup. You should have received it on the way in. If you didn't and you'd like some, just go ahead and put your hand in the air. We have an usher bring it to you. Um, but the, the bread represents the body of Jesus. The cup represents his blood. And as we do today, let's remember, uh, go ahead and put your hand in the air if you'd like some, uh, if you missed the elements and would like some. But as we do, let's remember the one who told us that the greatest commandment of them all was to love God completely. And who said this? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. With that in mind, let's go to our Heavenly Father. Father, for Jesus today, we give you thanks and praise. Father, for the opportunity to be with our brothers and sisters, for the opportunity to share this meal, for the opportunity to get the word open, Father, and to, and to dream big about where you can take us in this life. We give you thanks. Uh, Lord, for the areas of our lives that we've kind of roped off, uh, Father, we ask you to step over or through the rope, Father, so that you can take all of us, that we can be completely dedicated to you at all times, all places heart, mind, soul, and strength. So either now with bread and cup, we remember Jesus, the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. We pray this in his name. Amen.